So glad that you're here this morning, and we're glad that God's here this morning, aren't we? Praise God. Praise the Lord. He's what makes the difference between this and just any, any other gathering. I was raised in churches that were nice, and you came in, and you counted the time you could get out, and it usually wasn't that long anyway, and you just did it to fulfill an obligation. But this place is virtually full every Sunday because people come here not to fulfill an obligation, but because there's life. And it's not because there's life in me. It's not because of this building. It's life in this word. There's life, there's life in, G, in a relationship with Jesus. There's life in what God has for you. It's real. The gospel's real. The Bible's real. Jesus is real. The resurrection's real. And God, and God really loves you. Praise God. So let's pray. We're going to welcome those that are listening listening to us or joining us live by way of WSTL this morning. We're glad that you're with us. So let's pray. Father, we're asking you today, we thank you again for what we've come to celebrate today, which is your wonderful, incredible gift of love to give your son to come to this earth, to walk among us, among men, to die on that cross, to take our sin, to pay the, our price, and then to be raised from the dead so that we might have newness of life here and we might have eternal life with you. Father, it will take all of eternity for us to realize the enormity of the love that you've shown for us in what you've done. But we come here this morning, Lord, because we believe that by your Spirit you can give us a revelation, an insight, and greater understanding in our hearts that can begin to have an impact on our lives. So that as we leave here today, Father, we're not going to leave here having heard a nice message, but we're going to leave here changed because the world out there needs to know that you are real. They need to know that their life can be changed and delivered because you are really here and you really love them and you've really paid for them. And so to do that in our lives, we need the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and quicken it into our hearts. And we thank you for we know he's faithful to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read down through, uh, and by the time we're finished this morning, we may read through this whole chapter. That's okay, isn't it? To read the Bible in church. A lot of churches nowadays don't do that. They just kind of take a verse and then the pastor talks about it. But this, the Word, the Word is what changes us. It's the preaching of the Word, which what God has ordained in our lives. And as we get into this, what I want to do is I'm going to read down through it. But before, I want to just share a little bit about where we're going. So you can keep the slide up there. That's okay. I'm going to do something this morning I very rarely have done. Uh, maybe never. I'm, uh, and a lot of pe- pastors teach a three-point message. And they, it's clever because the, the points all begin with the same letter. And I don't usually do that. I just get the word and follow wherever I think God's taking us to go. But I had three words come to me this week. And it was neat because they all began with the same letter. So I'm going to do a three-point sermon. <laughs> Amen. Believe me, if you will get through all three points. And it has to do, the first, the first point is the reality. They all begin with an R. The reality of the resurrection. And I'll share with you a little background of why, why this is meaningful to me. Because as most of you that have been coming here, I was, a lawyer for, I was a lawyer for 10 years before I got saved. I was a lawyer for 20 years, before over 20 years at various times. But, but I was a lawyer in a large firm in Boston. And my training was, was to question things. And if, if, you know, if you told me something just because you told me doesn't believe it's true, I want to know, how do you know that? Because when I stood before a judge, he didn't care what my opinion was. He didn't care that it was your opinion. He didn't care whether we agreed with him or not. I had to go back to the authority that he had to obey, which was the, which was the law of the land, the statutes and the, and the case law of the land. So I was trained to go back to the source of things. How do I know that's true? How do I know that's real? But that became 
became a real block to me when it came to, we, some friends came into our lives and an experience that we had together with some of them, a, a, a teaching a thing we belonged to that had to do with marriages, and God was trying to get through to me. But the problem I had was located between my left ear and my right ear was my mind. And, and God will work with your mind. And my problem was I believed, my, my, how do you prove this? How do you know this is true? Because I don't want to commit myself to something that I don't know is true. Because my image was that Christianity, just part, this is where I was 38 years ago, was that Christianity was for women and weak-minded men. But intelligent people didn't go for this stuff, because how could you prove it? And God's faithful because He'll meet you where you are. And God brought across my path some books. One was written by a gentleman named Chuck Colson, who had a tremendous prison ministry. But before that, he was the senior, he was the, he was the um, managing partner of the second largest law firm in Boston, which just happened to be across the street from where I was. He also became the president's chief counsel, personal counsel through the whole Watergate thing. But in the middle of it, he got involved in that deception, and he ended up going to prison. But in the, between being charged and going to prison, he got saved. Amen. That didn't fit my image of a Christian. <laughs> and then I discovered in reading his book, the man that led him to the Lord was the CEO and chairman of the board of Raytheon Corporation. That didn't fit my image. <laughs> and then some books came across my path written by C.S. Lewis, who wrote sort of some wonderful allegories, Chronicles of Narnia. But what came across my page my, was mere Christianity. And then I realized this man was a professor of English in Oxford University. Brilliant man. I'm saying, wait a minute. This doesn't fit my image. What was happening was God was meeting me where I was. He was meeting me with my, at, my, at the level of my mind, which was causing the challenge. We're going to see some disciples today. We may not spend much time on them. But one of the things that really struck me in listening to a, another teacher of earlier this year was how Jesus, when he appeared, because that's what we're here to talk about this morning, when he appeared to, to his own disciples. Yes. Yeah. Who'd followed him for three and a half years. See him walk on water. Had actually seen him distribute bread to them and then allow them to feed over 5,000. They watched him raise the dead. They would watched him open. They watched all these things. And, and, and uh, I got the number here. Over eight times he told them that he was going to Jerusalem. He was going to be put in the hands of the authorities. He was going to be crucified and then three days later raised from the dead. Eight times he told them that. And then when it happened, they didn't believe it. At the very end, when he appears to them on the Mount of Transfiguration, he has to rebuke their unbelief. The eleven disciples. So seeing is not necessarily believing. In fact, in Mark's account, he rebukes them because of the hardness of their hearts. But God will meet us where we are. So we're going to read down through this because I want you to see some of the elements. And then we're going to get to the three R's. Well, not the, the only three. The, the three R's of the resurrection. That's the title of this message. And they have to come up with one. But 
Sometimes the message meets the title, and sometimes the title comes from the message. So let's start reading Scripture. Now, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain women, it's always the women that are there first, with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were great. These were the women that buried him. Well, that's important in a few minutes. And it happened that when they were greatly perplexed about that, behold, two men, they were angels from other accounts, stood by them in shining garments. And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, these, these are the two men, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. Amen? Amen. He's risen. Hallelujah. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. They're, these angels are calling them back to something Jesus told them was going to happen. Amen. I don't know about you, but this encourages me because that means just because we've been told something doesn't mean we get it. If you're a parent, you understand that. <laughs> If you've been a child, your parents understood it <laughs> from you. And as a pastor, I understand it. I don't get impatient with people because they don't get it right away because there's a lot of things I didn't get right away and there's some things I'm still getting. Yes. Am I the only one? No. Okay, all right. Okay, the front row's in this. Okay, all right. <laughs> Praise God. That's what happens when you sit on the front row. All right. I won't go there. <laughs> While he was still with you, verse 7, this is what he was saying to them in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his word. Oh yeah, Jesus told us this. They returned from the tomb and told the rest of these things to the eleven and all the rest. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. Some translations say nonsense. So these are women that they know. It's not like these are some crazy kooks they'd never met before. These women have been with them in the ministry. These women have traveled with them and they come back and tell them what they've just seen and to the 11 disciples, apostles, they seem like idle tales or nonsense. And they did not believe them. All right. Verse 12. But Peter arose and ran down to the tomb and stooping down he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves and he departed marveling to himself at what had happened. And now what happens, it goes into account where two of them were traveling on a road to Emmaus. And, and, and the, a traveler comes along with them and starts talking to them. I'm not going to read down through there. I'm going to summarize it for you. And a traveler comes alongside of them and starts asking them, what's going on? What's happening, man? What's up? Uh, he didn't say that. <laughs> That's just kind of modern trade. And it says in verse 16, their eyes were restrained so they did not know them. I don't believe God restrained their eyes. I believe their unbelief restrained their eyes. What you're open to affects what you're, willing, what you're able to see. What you're willing to do affects what you're able to hear. So if you're having trouble hearing what the Lord's saying, maybe, it's not the only reason, maybe it's because you're not willing to do whatever He says. Because we're like children. Our children can have selective hearing. When it's time for ice cream, their ears work very well. 
when it's time to take the garbage out, those same ears that hear so well aren't working too well. And we're just like them because we're children of God. So they didn't recognize him. Their eyes weren't restrained. I don't believe God restrained their eyes. I believe their eyes were restrained by their unbelief. Okay. And of course, it tells her who their names were. They were walking along. And it says, uh, and, and he says, Are you the only stranger in town? Uh, oh, the, the, this man we find is Jesus later on. says, Why are you so sad? And they say, Are you the only man in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's happened here? And then they recount, recount for him what had happened, as if he didn't know. They're telling him that, 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 that this Jesus was arrested, he was tried, he was put into the hands of the rulers, he was condemned to death, and he was crucified. And verse 21 says, We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, because all this, today is the third day since these happened. And yes, and certain women of our company arrived at the tomb early, astonished us when they didn't find the body. And they came to us saying that they also had a vision of angels who said he was alive. Amen. And then, and then he says to them in verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. So he's saying to them, the prophets told of this, why are you so having so much trouble believing? They offered these things about that he must suffer to enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. And then what's happened is they go near the village. They decide it's time to stop and get a bite to eat. They were, he was going to go past. They ask him to sit down with them. He comes and sit down with them. And as they broke bread, he says together, they recognized who he was. Amen. And, and my own belief is that the breaking of bread reminded them of only several nights before when he broke bread with them again. And that, that similar action reminded them of him. And suddenly they were able to believe. I never taught this before. In fact, I've never seen it before right now. Ever, ever have somebody, you know, you, 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 you look at them. I saw somebody the other day, and I looked at them and said, boy, they're familiar. There's something about them that, that it triggered a memory that was somewhere way back in the recesses of these gray cells. And I worked up, oh, yeah, that's who, that's who that reminds me of. And this was only like three days earlier, and it reminded them the way he broke that bread, because there must have been something about his, his way he did it. And that was enough to jog their memory. That's who he is. And then they could see who he was, and then he disappeared. And they run back to the disciples and say, how our hearts burn within us when he talked. That should have been some clue. Yeah, right. That should have been some clue. And now Jesus appears to them. They report this. They told him what happened. We're going to pick up verse 36. Now, as they said these things, they're back now with the rest of the group. Jesus himself stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they'd seen a spirit. So they were still having trouble. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Handle me, touch me, and see. For a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see. When he said these things, he showed them his hands and feet, the holes in them. John talks about him sticking their hands and his fingers in, his, in the holes. And while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Do you have food to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and honeycomb. And I believe, and he ate, took it and he ate in their presence. I believe, this is my belief that the reason he did it wasn't because he was hungry. He was showing them that this body's real. 
I'm sure they were watching him to see if that piece of fish went right on through him and fell on the floor. <laughs> They're human. That's what I would have done. Okay, let's see what happens to it. Went in his mouth, it disappeared. And it didn't just drop on the floor, and he swallowed it and he ate it. His body was real. In fact, it's so real, we don't have time to get into the, the other scriptures, that, that he, he, didn't, he didn't... Hey guys, it's me, let me in. He just appeared. I believe he walked through the walls. Why? How could he do that? Have you tried that lately? I did a few nights ago and it didn't feel good. <laughs> Not really. Here's why. His body was more real than the walls of that building. His body was more real than the walls of that building. And I could go on in that. There's an example I can give, but I'm not going to take the time to do that. So now he's got to help them with their unbelief. Verse 44, And he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. So he's calling them back to what he's already told them that all these things must be fulfilled which were written by the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me, referring to the prophecies about the Messiah. And he opened their understanding, which is what we're trusting God to do for us this morning, that they might comprehend or grasp or understand the scriptures. So this isn't some scheme. This isn't some plan. This isn't some promotion. This is in some man's idea, and we're going to look at this in a minute. Jesus is reminding them, calling them back, this is what God was preparing you for now through prophecies that happened over thousands of years through many different men, and his recalling them back to what they knew of those prophecies, and this was to fulfill those things. So the authority for this, this is so important because his death, burial, and resurrection was not his idea. It was not something the disciples came up with. We're we're seeing they were confused, frustrated, and scared by this whole thing. This was God's plan to redeem mankind that's first announced in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And everything that happens from Genesis 3.15 on up to this point is to prepare man to receive his son when he comes to redeem them. So we would have prophet after prophet (laughs) prophesy out the coming of the Messiah in different aspects about him. So that when Jesus came, he came to fulfill those prophecies. He didn't come to do his own thing. He didn't come, there's a verse where it says they tried to kill him, but it says it wasn't the appointed time, which means God had appointed a time for him to be arrested. God had appointed a time for him to be crucified. God had appointed a time for him to be buried. God had appointed a time from the very beginning of time for him to be raised from the dead. This was God's plan to redeem mankind, to buy us back from what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3, because God saw you and me before the foundation of the earth and Jesus saw you when he went to that cross. He saw you when he died. He saw you when he was raised from the dead. He did it for you and he did it for me and it was God's plan for you and me. This isn't just something 
that happened. Because there's theories out there. Well, this the disciples tried to make the best of a bad situation. They were confused and scared. <laughs> we'll see that more clearly in a few minutes. Glory be to God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We're going to stop there for a moment. And I want to... I want to... <laughs> I felt led to do this. I don't do this very often. I felt led to go to a book, and, and I, I, I hesitate to do this because I didn't let Pastor Ray know ahead of time. So I don't know whether we have it in the bookstore or not. But it's a book written by Josh McDowell years ago, but it's been updated, called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I like that because I was a lawyer. Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now remember my testimony that there were that I struggled because I didn't think I didn't think that this was I thought this was just something people just chose to believe in and as I began to read this three years ago and began to realize what McDowell is saying is if you honestly are willing to look at the facts yes. it takes more faith to believe that Jesus wasn't the Son of God it takes more faith to believe that he wasn't raised from the dead than to believe that he was raised from the dead it takes more faith to do that. Right. See, Christianity is not blind faith. Right. It's not stepping out on nothing because you can't have faith in nothing. Right. You have to have faith in something. Right. And God gives us evidence. The scriptures give us evidence. Not just the scriptures, just some common sense gives us evidence. And I want to go through a little bit of this because the first point of these three R's is the reality of the resurrection because everything else hinges off of this. So I'm just what I'm going to talk to you about is going to has come out of this book. And there are many other things in there. He states in there that in the Old Testament there are over 300 references to Jesus, not by his name, to Jesus that are that are carried out in his life. Over 300. Keep in mind that those Old Testament prophets <clears throat> covered a span of several thousand years and it covers some 20, 30 individuals so they couldn't have gotten together and had a committee decide how are we going to make up something that when he comes he can fulfill they could not have done that by their own ability they didn't live in the same generation they didn't live in the same century some of them didn't live in the same millennium so they never knew each other the only thing they had in common is the same spirit of God moved on them Amen. okay yes sir there are 61 specific prophecies in the Old Testament <clears throat> that refer to exactly what was going to happen to the Messiah. One man. 29 of those are fulfilled in one day. I mean one week. The week of his passion. 29 prophecies over several millennia are fulfilled in the life of one man in one week. Thank you, Lord. One of the things he says in there, which is why I brought the book up, because I want to quote from it. He goes through and, 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 and very rationally lays everything out. 
And one of the objections that he, public, popular objections, is that, well, these prophecies just happened to be filled. It it was a coincidence. You know, (laughs) it's an old saying. I think it's old. That even a broken clock tells the correct time twice a day. So just because you get it right twice in 24 hours doesn't mean you're working right. That's a coincidence. If it's actually 4 o'clock and you happen to look at the clock, hey, the clock's right, it's 4 o'clock, but in 5 minutes that clock's wrong. That's a coincidence. So he found, he found a study written in the American Scientific Affiliation of Goshen College which wrote a foreword to a man named Peter Stoner's book called Science Speaks. And it was carefully reviewed by the scientific affiliation members and the executive council of the same group, and it was found to be dependable and accurate with regard to the scientific material presented. The mathematical, this is mathematical, the mathematical analysis, analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound, and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in the proper and convincing way. The following probabilities were taken from this writing of Professor Stoner in Science Speaks to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. Stoner says that by using modern science of probability in reference to just eight prophecies, just eight of them, and I'll tell you what they're about. These eight prophecies cover his birthplace, the forerunner John the Baptist, his entering Jerusalem on a donkey, his betrayal by a friend, being sold for 30 pieces of silver, that the money is thrown back into the temple, and the number seven is that he stood silent before his accusers, and the most amazing one is eight, which is the method of his crucifixion, which is his hands and his feet were pierced. Why that's so amazing is the Jews, when that prophecy was made, didn't know crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians and adopted by the Roman Empire. The Jews, when they executed somebody under the law, stoned them to death. They would hang a rebellious child's body. Well, that would preach, wouldn't it? (laughs) If a child talked back to their parents, they were stoned to death. And then their body was hung on a tree so that others could see. They didn't have a lot of juvenile delinquency problems. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just telling you historical fact. So kids, it's okay. But the amazing thing about this is crucifixion, that method of being nailed to a cross, hadn't been invented yet. Wasn't known to the Jews until the Romans conquered them in some, five, I guess 500 or so BC. Very specific. Those are just eight prophecies. You ready for this? Here's what the probability, the probability, the chance that any one man might have lived down to the present time and, and fulfilled in his life eight of those prophecies is one in ten to the 17th power. Now for us non-math people, that's a little hard to grasp. So that's one chance out of, and here's the number, 
One followed by 17 zeros. One chance out of one followed by 17. To give us a little better explanation of that, I want to read what he said. In order to help us comprehend this staggering probability, Stoner illustrates it by supposing that we take that many silver dollars and lay them out on the face of the state of Texas. I've got a son-in-law that's from Texas, and Texas is, there's Texas and there's the rest of the country. Everything in Texas is big, so Texas is a great state to pick for this. That if you took that many silver dollars and you laid them out over, the, over the, all of the state of Texas, they would cover the entire state two feet deep. Okay? Now suppose you marked one of these silver dollars, stirred the whole mass thoroughly before you spread them out all over the state, and you blindfolded a man and you tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes in that mass of silver dollars, but he must pick, he's got one chance to pick up the one silver dollar that's been marked, and he must get it right. What chance would he have of getting that one right? The same chance of one and 10 to the 17th power. That's the odds by mathematical calculation of eight of these 60-some prophecies being fulfilled in the life of a man. We'll hear more from this book at other times. Oops, I got a bunch of notes in here. All right. Praise the Lord. Okay, now, there are objections out there. There are popular objections, and again, we're establishing the reality of the, of the of the resurrection. How can we believe this is true? So there, he talks about four basic criticisms of this. The first is, he didn't really die, he just swooned. He lost so much blood, he was so exhausted that on that cross, he didn't die, he, he just swooned, and that swoon was so complete that they mistook it for death. Well, there are a number of problems with that. First of all, the Roman soldiers that nailed him to the cross, they were experienced with when somebody was dead. And there were two other guys on the other side of him that were clearly dead. Secondly, they took a spear to stick it up into his side and it broke his heart sack. So if he wasn't dead before, he was sure dead at that point. Next, they wrapped him in cloths and they put a spice around him. Some of the accounts I've read of that is that would tend to harden to be like a cocoon. And when they found the empty tomb, those strips were all laid out, folded over. So he would have suffocated if he wasn't already dead. The second thing is that the disciples stole his body. And if you read one of the accounts, it says that the, the, Jews, the Jewish authorities paid the soldiers to say that. Well, that doesn't make sense either. Because if you know anything about Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers that were put on guard, if they fell asleep, the penalty was execution. That'll give you an incentive to stay awake and drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> Secondly, if I read these disciples right, they weren't the boldest of men right now. 
They weren't the boldest of men. They were hiding. So it would have taken a lot of nerve for them to sneak up around the Roman guards, roll the stone away, which by the way took a number of people's enormous thing, and steal the body away. The other thing that doesn't make sense, if, if they really stole his body, why were they having so much trouble believing that he was risen from the dead? There's another slight problem with that. Paul says he was seen by over 500 men. Which leads us into the next objection. Which is that his appearances were mere hallucinations. That people just hallucinated that. That's a greater miracle. You get 500 people having the same party and having the same, drinking the same stuff. He was seen over a period of 40 days, over 40 days. So everybody had the same hallucination? And that hallucination ate fish in front of them? You know, it's amazing. When you're determined not to face the truth, how amazingly we can come up with things. I don't want to get off on this, but one of my greatest examples to me, I just, it's so funny. Because again, I was raised in a family where people thought they were intellectuals. And they were. My, grand, my stepfather was a brilliant man. I won't go into his story. So that was, that was, you know, I was raised around that. I went to a very exclusive uh, private school my last two years. I was going to school with some geniuses. And, that was not, and I wasn't one of them. <laughs> so that's what I was raised around. So my, I've always been impressed with how, with intelligence and brightness, that my goodness, the brighter you are, the, the more right you're likely to be. <laughs> I never thought of this example before. <laughs> If you take an old prop plane, single engine prop plane, and you take a supersonic jet, and you get them both flying on the right same course, and they both get off course by a degree, (laughs) the old prop plane's only going to get a little bit lost. The supersonic jet is going to get way lost because the faster you go, the more you can get off track. And the smarter you are, the more you can get deceived. That may sound strange, but I go to say that by one of the leading atheists in our land today, interviewed a number of years ago about the theory, the, the theory of evolution, why he wouldn't even, why it shouldn't even be taught in school, is he says there's no scientific basis for that. He said, okay, well, where's the first, the first life come from that everything evolved from? Get this? He said, our best theory, not scientific fact, is that aliens deposited them here. He said, you're telling me, you're telling me that it's more scientifically sound to believe that aliens deposited those first life here than that they were created by a god? Yes. Okay. I didn't mean to get off on all that. But this is what happens. The last one, the fourth one, is they went to the wrong tomb. (laughs) Oops! They all look alike. I don't know how we managed to do... They're the ones that buried him! And you'd think in 40 days they could have figured it out. 
And if they went to the wrong tomb, so what? They went to the wrong tomb. They went to an empty tomb. They just happened to have the same grave, grave claws folded in it. <laughs> and then they still saw him, 500 men saw him over 40 days. It takes more faith to believe those things than the scripture, what the scriptures say that he was raised from the dead. So his, re, his resurrection is a reality. Amen. Now the second R <coughs> is the results of the re- resurrection. The reality of people being confronted by or exposed to his resurrected body changed them. His resurrection changed history. Everything before and everything after was parted by this event that took place that Sunday morning. Millions of people had died before. But this man died and was raised from the dead. His burial, his resurrection proved that he was the Son of God. He'd made claims. He'd performed miracles. He'd even raised some from the dead. But now he's been raised from the dead. It validates that Jesus is who he says he is. He's the Son of God, and he's the Messiah. It's interesting because C.S. Lewis talks about... See, what people want to to detract... I'm getting ahead of myself. But when you, when you begin to understand that if Christ is who he says he is, I'm getting into my last point, it confronts you. You may try to ignore it, but it confronts you that he is God that came in the flesh, God that died for us in the flesh, and God was raised from the dead for us in the flesh. It con- we're confronted with the truth of that. What are we going to do with that? <coughs> It validates who he is. C.S. Lewis said that what people try to do is they'll say, well, and this is what other religion, uh, religions will do with him. Well, I, he was a prophet. Just one of many prophets. He was a, a holy man, a good man, who had wonderful teachings. You understand Karl Marx even used him. Karl Marx thought he was a communist. I'll t- I don't have time to get into why. People use things he said. They use things he did for their own purposes. Instead of submitting to who he is and what he did for our purposes. Lewis says, you don't have that option. Because Jesus said he was the son of God. Amen. Jesus said he was the Messiah. God raised him from the dead to validate and prove who he was. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. He took away from you uh, the option of saying he was just a good man. He was just a prophet. Because listen, see this is where it's not rational when you get away from the word. How did he take the option away? Because if he said he was the son of God, and he wasn't, he's either a liar, or he's deceived. In either case, he's not a great prophet. In either case, 
He's not a great moral teacher. He's either a liar or a lunatic, is what Lewis says. So you, we don't have that option with him. People, we do that. People do that to avoid facing the reality of who Jesus is. That's right. Because if I face the reality of who Jesus is, I have to make a choice. I have to decide I'm going to receive him or I'm going to reject him. I can't be neutral. So the way I try to be neutral is to excuse him as something else. Yes. And he doesn't give you that option. I got ahead of myself. This is coming from this book. All but four, all but four of the major religions of the world are based on philosophical propositions. They're not based on a person. They're based on certain teachings, certain ideals, certain methods. There are four that are based on a personality. Of those four, three of those personalities died, three of those personalities are in their grave, and you can go, and many people go to some of them, and worship the graveside where they're buried. Christianity is the only belief system in the world that follows a person who died, was buried, and has come alive again. Amen. What does that mean to us? That means I can have a living relationship with the one who died for me. I can have a living relationship with the founder of my religion. I can know him. In fact, he said, Behold, I stand at the door of your heart, of your life, and I knock. If you'll just open the door, I will come in and live inside of you. I will bring my life inside of you. I will bring my love inside of you. I will bear my grace, my peace, my hope inside of you. Kind of gotten ahead of myself here, but that's okay. What's the result of this resurrection? It's the completion. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. It's the completion of God's redemption promised us in Genesis 3.15. 1 Corinthians 15. Start in verse 1, when I find 15. Moreover, brother, this is Paul talking about the resurrection. Because there were people in that day, when he's writing this, that were questioning the resurrection. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you that the gospel which I preached to you, which also was received in which you stand, by which you are saved, the gospel which you're saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, this is what he taught them, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, we looked at that earlier, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and by the twelve, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to this present, and some have fallen asleep. They died. After that he was seen by James, and then by all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time. Let's stop there a second. Talk about what difference that made. Paul was one of the Pharisees, one of the leading Pharisees. Highly intelligent, highly educated, very literate, very well-spoken, intelligent man, was convinced that this 
what was called the way at the time. This Christianity was a heresy for Judaism. And he was passionate about it, so he was going, he would go out and arrest Christians, bring them back to be punished, to give up their faith. And he was on the road to Damascus with letters of instructions from the chief priest to go find the Christians in Damascus, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem. And in one moment's time, Paul's entire life was turned around. His purpose was turned around. And it wasn't because somebody handed him a good book. It wasn't because he got a great email. It wasn't because he saw some great video on TV or on YouTube. It's because on that road to Damascus, suddenly there appeared to him a blinding light. And he heard a voice speaking out of heaven to Saul of Tarsus. His name was then, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not, what are you doing to the church that I started? Paul, it was Jesus saying, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, he said, who are you, Lord? Not, what do you believe? Who are you that's speaking to me? He said, I am Jesus the Christ, the one whom you are persecuting. Paul's encounter with the risen Christ, with the real resurrected Christ, turned his entire life upside down and around and changed the history of mankind. One encounter with the risen Christ. Amen. I was raised in church. I went through Sunday school, not some of the churches you guys came from, but I was raised in churches. I got, when I became a lawyer, we were married for 10 years, not when I became a lawyer, but married about 10 years into our marriage as a lawyer, 10 years into my practice. I'm not going to go through the whole story. I've shared it before. I was a deacon in the church. I'd even preached. You wouldn't want to hear it. I wouldn't want to hear it. But I'd actually done a sermon. I read it. It was as dead as it could get. But I did it. I wasn't saved. I knew about Jesus. I taught about Jesus. I'd read about Jesus all my life. But I didn't know him. He was a religious historical figure to me. And so he didn't affect my life. But one night after everybody was in bed, and it's after the result of a lot of things happening, I don't have time to get into this morning. In my living room, I can still see it, it's in the foyer. I stood there and said, I don't know whether you're real or not. This was my great statement of faith. I don't know whether you're real or not, Jesus. But I know I can't go on without knowing one way or the other. I'm in such agony over this because God's Spirit was drawing me and I was fighting Him. But I was fighting Him because I was afraid to believe that I might be disappointed and He might not be real. And when I saw that, I realized I had to find out. And I said, Jesus, I don't know whether you're real or not. (laughs) I have reservations. But if you are, if you are, I'm asking you to come into my life. I opened the door that much. If I still, when I look back, I just opened the door a crack. 
but he flooded in. All I know is something, something happened. Something came down inside of me. A joy, a peace, something happened. And remember, I was a stubborn, hard-headed, my wife's going, hmm, stubborn, <laughs> hard-headed, intellectually proud, and I'm still in two-thirds of my three-piece suit. <laughs> It's my vest and my pants. And, 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 and all of a sudden, I'm jumping around my living room. He's real. 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 I could hardly sleep that night. I woke up that next morning. I think I was 30. No, I was in my 30s. <laughs> And I got up, I wanted to kiss everybody. I felt like a teenager that had just fallen in love. I, I wanted to kiss the lawyers in my office. That's how bad it was. The heavy guy that gave me my coffee in the morning. It's like everything was beautiful. I was in love. That doesn't happen in my, I was a philosophy major. That didn't happen for all the philosophers that I studied. That didn't come out of my law books. That didn't come out of, because I've been trying to read my Bible up until then. And I was, because I was searching. And it was the deadest, hardest thing to read. I couldn't understand it. And yet I could understand the Internal Revenue Code when I read it. <laughs> but I couldn't understand this book. But I kept after it, because I was searching. And from that time on, when I met the risen Savior, when I met the live, living Jesus, from that time on, I couldn't get out of this book. I'd, I'd stay up to one or two in the morning. I got to get to bed. This book became alive all of, in one day's time. This book changed for me. Why? Because the author of this book was now living inside of me. So we've looked at the reality of the resurrection. We've looked at the response, the results of the re re resurrection. The third R is what's your response to the resurrection? It requires, it demands a response. No response is a response. That's right. I want to close by reading continue on in Luke 24 because I stopped in what Jesus was telling his disciples he'd said it was written it was necessary for Christ to suffer to rise and to rise from the dead on the third day verse 47 that repentance you don't hear that much in church and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem and you are now witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. You shall wait in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Let's go quickly over to Acts chapter 2. I said that was the last, but this fits in here. Acts chapter 2. Peter now. Remember Peter? Yes, sir. The one who denied him three times. The one who was scared. Who was hiding out with the rest of them. Peter's now met the risen Lord chained everything for him. Right. He's now been filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And Peter, in the, in, when, on this day of Pentecost, it spills out into the streets. It didn't stay in church, which is, it shouldn't stay in church. It should spill out into the streets. And, and people come and say, what is this? They thought they were drunk. And Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk as you suppose. Yeah. And he goes and quotes prophet Joel and says, this is what the prophet Joel wrote about this day. And he finishes down in this sermon. We're going to put, put it, pick up here in verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days to the Lord. I'll pour out my spirit in all flesh. Your son, all right, you're going back to the beginning of that. Let's, I want to pick up in Acts 2 at verse... Um, verse 36. Having quoted the prophecies, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has, God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Stop there a second. He's confronting them with the reality of who this Jesus is that they executed and that they buried that's now been raised from the dead. And they said, this is the Christ that God sent that you've been waiting for, and you crucified him. See, people get mad at the Jews because they crucified him. This was ordained by God. If they hadn't crucified him, we'd all be lost in our sins. So don't get mad at them. But he was confronting them. Peter was confronting them with who this is. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, who Jesus is, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It got through their heart. It, 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 it stuck them in their heart. And, and they said to Peter, this is the sign. Remember, Jesus said, go preach what I, what I, all these things you've seen, and then preach what the result of this is. The response is repentance. And then if people will repent, the remission of the sins, the wiping away of all their sins and guilt. Amen. But the step for that is repentance. So the reality of who Christ is, why He came, and what He's done for us requires us to either reject Him or repent. The repentance just means, I admit what I am. I admit that there's sin in my life. I admit that I live my life for myself. I admit that although I may be a good person, I'm not as holy as God, which is what the requirement is. I admit I need a help. I admit I need... That's what repentance is. And then we shall receive the remission of sins. So when Peter confronted them, we don't like that word confront. When Peter told them who it was, who this Jesus was, when they heard it, they were cut, I love the King James's, to the quick where they lived. It penetrated their heart, and you know it's penetrated your heart when your response is not, what a great message that was. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Pastor was on today, or well, you know, it's kind of an off day for him. You know, the purpose of church is not to evaluate the message. That's right. They were cut to the heart. And the res- you know it because their response was, What shall we do? Yes. And he says, verse, 30, verse 38, Acts 2 38, Peter said to them, Repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Today, the world celebrates Easter. I drove past people on my way in, our way in, you know, jogging. They're going to have dinner with people today. We're going to have dinner with our family. It's a wonderful time for family. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. But the significance of the resurrection that we, re we celebrate today, which was a real event yes. that really happened, yes. and didn't just happen to over 2,000 years ago, it happened in my life 38 years ago. Many of us in here, most of us in here, it's happened to us. We've met the risen Savior because He's alive today. And the question is, what is your response? What has been your response to the reality of the resurrection? Because there's going to come a day, the Bible tells us, when every one of us is going to stand before God and give an account of our lives. And when I stand before Him, I'm not going to have to say, I did this right and I did this wrong. When I stand before Him, He's not going to look at me. He's going to look at Jesus, who I've received, who paid for my sins. And the question is, when you stand before him, what do you have to show him? Are you going to show him that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? I have bad news for you, although it's good news because you're hearing it today and not discovering it that day. Because I don't care how good you've been. Mother Teresa with all of her self-sacrificing good she did for mankind, if she stood before God with all of her good deeds, she still would fall infinitely short. You say, that's not fair. Yes, because God's standard is His own holiness. So you will either stand before God in your own holiness, which He will measure against His. Or you'll stand before him in Christ and he will measure his holiness against the Father's holiness. Which side do you want to be on? That's what the resurrection offers for us today. Let's pray. Father, with all the celebration that takes place today and all the fun and food and all the good times, and maybe for some it's a difficult day because it's a time to remember loved ones that aren't here with us anymore. But even for them, Father, the resurrection gives to them a hope. Although they may not have their loved ones with them this day, because of the resurrection, they know that they have a sure hope that there's coming a day when they will spend that day with their loved ones. Father, we bring all of these people, all of ourselves to you today. We ask you, Lord, to take the reality of the resurrection, the results of the resurrection, and make them real in our hearts so that we will respond to the resurrection the way you intended it. I pray for everybody here, Lord, that's in their own heart searching as I was searching. I pray that you would come and knock on their door this morning and that they would strengthen them so they could open the door of their heart as I did 38 years ago 
because you want to come into their lives. Not to judge them, not to condemn them, but to forgive them, to bring your love, your grace, your victory into their lives and into their hearts. Help them, this Lord, to open the eyes of their understanding, to see what is the hope of your calling for their life that's in Christ Jesus.